All right, I'm going to go ahead and pray, and then, uh, then we'll get started. Dear Heavenly Father, you are the just judge of all the earth, and you will do only that which is right. We are grateful that in your mercy you have sent your Son, Jesus, to be the great high priest over the house of God. He is the great mountain climber, the one faithful servant who has ascended the hill of the Lord, and he's done this for us. Through his blood, he has opened the great highway by which the nations will flock to you. Make us just kings and queens. Bring us to maturity and make us bold prophets on the earth. And all of this for the sake of your son, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Okay. So uh, you have your handouts. Again, relevant information there. And I'm going to let you in on a little secret. I try to read over um, my lesson just before I teach it most of the time, but uh, by just before, I mean at least usually the morning of, but I didn't get to do that today. Um, so, sorry. <laughs> Things may be a bit more scattered than I'd like them to be, but uh, we'll, we'll see what, how this shakes out. Uh, I ended last week by saying that the book of Leviticus was written to help us answer sort of one basic question found in Psalm 24, who shall ascend the mountain of the Lord? And th this is actually how the, the NIV has that, uh, the, that verse translated, who shall ascend the mountain of the Lord or the mountain of Yahweh, who may stand in his holy place, the one who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not trust in idols or swear by a false god, or who does not trust an idol or swear by a false god. But at the outset, that may not sound too much like us outside of Christ, but part of the good news that we hear preached week in and week out uh, at, here at Grace is that in Christ, we are that. We're, we're made to be like Christ. We're being perfected um, as we speak. Okay. Um, of course, you might be wondering at this point um, about Psalm 24. You might be thinking something like, well, does God have a mountain? Where does this idea come from? And if he does have a mountain, why would anyone need to climb that mountain? Why ask the question? Why does the question involve those concepts? Mountain, climbing a mountain. And so in order to make sense of the concepts involved in the question posed in Psalm 24, We'll, yet again, continuing pre-Leviticus, have to understand just a little bit more about the Garden of Eden and the land of Eden more generally, and what happened there with our first parents, Adam and Eve. And I need to grab my water, excuse me. If I don't, I'll never get through this. So as I said, we have to... Uh, we have to... Uh, get clear on a few things about uh, these early chapters of Genesis. Some of this you maybe will have heard before. Uh, we need to get clear on some of the geographical features of the early chapters of Genesis. So to that end, I've set for myself two major tasks for this talk this week. The first thing I want to do Let's try to make the case that the Garden of Eden was on a mountain or a very high hill, maybe. 
And seeing this will help us make sense of an idea that runs throughout the entire canon of Scripture. And ultimately, if we're reading the symbols of the world properly, um, dictates a proper reading of the world. And that is that God dwells on his holy mountain and longs for his human creatures to join him there on that mountain. He wants them to be there because, as we're going to see uh, a little more closely next week, we'll look at this more closely next week, um, we're not fully there in one sense. The world is not fully there. And this is because human beings were exiled out of the garden, out of this mountain garden, when our first parents, Adam and Eve, sinned and rebelled against God. So that's the first thing. The first thing I want to do, just to repeat is to make the case that the Garden of Eden was on a mountain. Okay. The second thing I want to do is reflect on the architecture of the tabernacle and how God is described in Scripture as dwelling there in the tabernacle. And give me a second because my computer is deciding to do some sort of weird update or something. <laughs> That's perfect. Um, but the second thing I want to do is reflect on the architecture of the tabernacle and how God is described in Scripture as dwelling there in the tabernacle. That's not news to anyone, I suspect. And I think what we're going to see, though, uh, as we do that, is that there are a number of parallels that exist between, or correspondences, between Mount Sinai, where God's glory uh, cloud rested or dwelled, and he spoke with the mediator of the people, Moses, and the tabernacle. There are a lot of correspondences between Mount Sinai and the tabernacle. And I think it reveals to us that just as the tabernacle was a little, it was a little world, it was a microcosm, well, the tabernacle was, in addition to being a microcosm, it was also a little mountain, a little movable mountain that the Israelites would uh, build up and then dismember. That's a, I'm using that word dismember intentionally because I think we should see the tabernacle also as a body. The Bible mixes metaphors all the time. It wouldn't be a talk. I wouldn't be give, Michael Neal wouldn't be giving a talk if he didn't say that. Um, right? we're, 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 the people of God are both God's son, but also his, his wife. Right? These, are, these are symbols of the people of God, metaphors for them. So what we're going to see as we look at the correspondences between Mount Sinai on the one hand and the tabernacle on the other is that the tabernacle becomes this little movable mountain. And we're going to talk about the significance of that um, because that's, that's going to set us up to understand the significance of what's going on in the Levitical uh, cultists, these, these uh, rituals and practices of Israel's, you know, we'll call it sacrificial system or system of worship. That's what it is. It's a system of worship. So, Again, to repeat these tasks, demonstrate that Eden and the garden were on a mountain, and second, that the uh, architecture of the tabernacle shows us that it's a movable mountain, and it's the mountain of Yahweh's dwelling. That's where he lives. So let's move to our first task here, the garden on a mountain. Throughout the Bible, we find that God is associated with various mountains. The prophet Amos says of God that he treads on the high places of the earth, chapter 4, verse 13. And as I said that, you might have traveled immediately to God meeting with Moses on Mount Sinai in the book of Exodus, where you might have thought about Mount Zion, the, that holy mountain city that represents both in the prophets and on into the New Testament, God's new creation, a redeemed world. 
But even before God meets with Moses on Mount Sinai, and before we hear of God's redeemed world, referred to as Mount Zion, God first meets with Adam, his very first priest, on a mountain, and that's Mount Eden. Eden is depicted on, uh, as being on a mountain, and therefore the Garden of Eden, that holy temple space that we spoke about, uh, we've been speaking about the past few weeks, well, because it's in Eden, it's also on a mountain. Right? If Eden is itself a mountain on a mountain, then or maybe the mountain, then you've got this garden that's in Eden. It just has to also be on the mountain. Now, <clears throat> we're going to look at Genesis chapter 2 for support for this idea. So if you would, uh, I've got the, uh, it's, this is the ESV. Uh, I keep telling you all th- what translation I'm using because people have asked me this before. So this is the ESV. It's on your handout there. It uh, should be page 2. So let's just read verses uh, 4 through 16, and I guess I'll read them for the recording. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land and there was no man to work the ground, and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man from, of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil." A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Delium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It is the one that flowed all around the land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat it, eat of it, you shall surely die. So the first thing I'd like to point out about Genesis 2 here, this passage in particular, is that it distinguishes between the land of Eden and the garden that's in the land of Eden, in the east of that land, in fact. Now, if we think about Eden and the garden as sort of concentric circles, Eden is the larger circle while the garden is the smaller circle in the land. And interestingly, Eden is described as having a mist or some kind of source of water that waters the whole area of Eden. And because water runs downhill, wherever this watery mist is, it must be an elevated place compared to the places around it. In verse 10, I have this underline, we read that a river flowed out of Eden and watered the garden. Once the river made it to the garden, it divided and became four rivers that then went out and watered uh, other lands such as Havilah and Cush, verses 11 and 13. So again, because water flows downhill, we should see the garden of Eden as occupying an elevated space above the surrounding lands. And these geographical features suggest to us that Eden and the garden are 
at the very least on an elevated place compared to the areas around them. As with the other features of the Genesis narrative, we can see that uh, other ancient Near Eastern people, they thought of uh, the beginning of the world, they, uh, sort of the center of the world, in a way similar to, I think, the, the ancient uh, Israelites. In particular, they believed that God met with gods, met with peoples on mountains. The late William Dumbrell has this to say about the broader ancient Near Eastern context of Genesis 2. So this is also, this should be page 3 of your handout. So uh, let me just pause for a second. So uh, just so we're, I didn't lay this particular um, uh, talk out in the form of premises and conclusions, but we could just think of um, the first premise here being something like, you know, the, uh, Eden and the garden are on a mountain, okay? Um, and one support, remember, because if, you, if, you, if you're running an argument, you have premises, what you need to do is you need to support your premises, right? Because the idea is to uh, demonstrate that they're true or demonstrate that they, they carry with them a high probability of truth. So our first defense so far of this idea that, that Eden and the garden are uh, on a mountain or an elevated place um, is that Genesis 2 seems to suggest that with the fact that water runs downhill and it runs out of these places, okay? That's our, that's our first uh, defense. So uh, what I want to do now is bring in a second defense of, you might say, that first premise and uh, suggest to you that, well, this is uh, part of the ancient Near Eastern context, again, just like we saw last week. Um, if uh, the ancient Near Eastern peoples thought something then, uh, about the world, we shouldn't be shocked to find Israel thinking similar things, um, especially if we have some evidence they probably thought similar things. Um, but I, I'll just, again, I want to say this. This doesn't mean at all, I think there's very good, there are very good arguments against this, but this doesn't mean that Israel just copied and pasted some other religious uh, worldview from some other ancient group of people. I think the uh, religious worldview of the Christian faith and our uh, forefathers in the faith in the Old Testament is a subversive worldview. It's, uh, what it's doing is it's, you could think of them as uh, in many ways, I think making fun of, challenging, poking at the worldviews, the religious worldviews of the people around them. So um, that I just we should we need to understand that uh, whenever we're using this uh, data from the ancient Near East, that's what that's how we should see it. So William Dumbrell, he writes this about the ancient Near Eastern context of Genesis chapter two. In the mythical structures of the ancient world. At the very center of the earth and so controlling it stood the sacred mountain where the deity of the national fortunes presided and where contact with him could be had. It was at this point that it was believed that the upper and lower waters of the cosmos met where heaven and earth and the netherworld were connected. We see these upper and lower waters of the cosmos in Genesis 1, right? He divides the waters. Uh, <clears throat> the important depiction of Eden as the holy mountain of God, itself a synonym for the temple in the Old Testament in Ezekiel 28, takes us back to this paramount theological point of the ancient Near East. In the ancient Near East, the sacred mountain was the meeting place of heaven and earth where celestial and mundane reality met, where the gods assembled in council presided over by the principal deity, Anu or El. This idea of a divine council is also present um, in our Christian scriptures. Um, 
what is it, uh, Psalm 82. You find uh, mentions of this divine counsel in uh, Job chapters 1 and 2. Uh, the divine council is made up of these spiritual beings called the sons of God. You also see the sons of God mentioned in Job chapter 38. Um, so again, more there's continuity here with the way that the uh, ancient Israelites saw the world and the way that their neighbors did. From this place, I'll continue with Dumbrell's quote, from this place, world decrees by which creation was to be regulated were promulgated. We see that in Genesis as well. A man, you know, uh, marriage is made for a man and a woman, right? Uh, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, right? This is, the, this is the way of the world. These things are written into creation. From this cosmic mountain, there was frequently thought to issue a sacred stream whose water teemed with supernatural significance. There at the sacred site, the victory that brought creation into being was won and celebrated. The cosmic mountain lay at the center of the world, and everything in creation took its bearings from it. Significant mountains in the ancient world were imagined as basic points of contact between heaven and earth. Eden is presented as the axis mundi, the, basically the center of the world, um, the point from which the primal stream from the mountain divides to the four quarters. We saw that when we read Genesis just a moment ago. In this, mountain, uh, in this mountain center stood the trees of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They signified the source of life and the manner by which life was to be conducted. That's the end of the quote. So the point here is that the, uh, that, uh, the ancient Near Eastern context in which Genesis 2 was written just lends support to the idea that Eden and the garden were on a mountain or a high place. That's our second piece of evidence. Now, we're going to go back to Scripture. We're not left to infer the sort of mountainous, so to speak, elevated character of the Garden and Eden from its ancient Near Eastern context and, and maybe a few allusions to that um, in Genesis 2. Uh, in fact, uh, what we're going to do is we're going to go to Ezekiel chapter 28. You'll see this on the next uh, slide there, on the next page of your handout. The prophet there refers to the Garden of God, I think the Garden of Eden, uh, as God's holy mountain. So let's take a look at this passage, and then we're going to hear what James Hamilton, uh, an Old Testament scholar, has to say about, about it. <clears throat> Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, raise a lamentation over the king of Tyre, and say to him, Thus says the Lord God. This comes in a section of Ezekiel where Ezekiel is trying to give the, the exiled peoples of uh, Judah um, uh, hope as they uh, are in exile. <laughs> and he's telling them that the day is coming when Yahweh is going to judge the nations. And so he, he's making reference here to the king of Tyre, a representative of the ungodly nations. You were the signet of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering, sardius, topaz, and diamond, uh, forgive me if I don't pronounce all these correctly. I, I'm, not, what, what's, I'm not a gemologist. Right? Anyway, I don't even know if that's what you call it. Anyway, beryl, onyx, uh, jasper, sapphire, emerald, and carbuncle. And crafted in gold were your settings and your engravings. Uh, how many of you uh, see an image of Israel's priests there? Yeah. Can, on the day that you were created, they were prepared. You were an anointed guardian cherub. I placed you, you were on the holy mountain of God, in the midst of the stones of fire you walked. So 
if you look, just look at verse 13, so in verses 14, I've got the relevant sections underlined for you there. You were, in the, you were in Eden, the garden of God. You were on the holy mountain of God. What chapter is this? 28, Ezekiel 28. Here, let me give you a handout. I'm sorry. Yeah. Okay, so um, here we have Ezekiel telling us that the garden of God, this Eden place, is on a ho- Yahweh's holy mountain. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created till unrighteousness was found in you. In the abundance of your trade, you were filled with violence in your midst and you sinned. So I cast you as a profane thing from the mountain of God, and I destroyed you, O guardian cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. We'll stop there. Um, this is what James Hamilton, again, an Old Testament scholar who's right down the road um, at Southern, has to say about this. He says, in this passage, I'm going to read a little bit from him, so bear with me. In this passage, Ezekiel addresses the king of Tyre, and he does so using imagery and terms that apply to, quote, that ancient serpent who was called the devil and Satan, Revelation 12:9. Ezekiel employs imagery having to do with heavenly beings, cherub, it's the term he uses, and the primordial, primordial garden Eden to speak of the king of Tyre to identify him with the rebellious heavenly being who introduced temptation into that pristine setting. And he's saying the king of Tyre is like the devil, essentially. And, this, and he, Hamilton goes on to say, what Ezekiel says here to the king of Tyre reflects what he has learned from earlier scripture about the garden of Eden and Satan. And his application of this satanic imagery to the king of Tyre reflects typological thinking. The king of Tyre is the type of person Satan is. What do Ezekiel's words to the king of Tyre show us about his father, the devil? This, quote, anointed guardian cherub, 20, verse, uh, 28, or chapter 28, verse 14, was in Eden. As the cherub was to guard Eden, so Adam the, and the priests were to guard Eden, tabernacle, and then temple later. Second, the cherub was anointed for his duties in Eden, just as the priests were anointed. For example, uh, verse 41, which I don't remember if I have that up there. For their duties at the tabernacle and temple. Third, the list of stones that were the covering for the cherub are the same stones to be used for the priest's garments. You can see the construction of the priest's garments in Exodus 28. Fourth and most significant, note that in Eden, the garden of God, this cherub was on the holy mountain of God. This indicates that when Ezekiel thought of the Garden of Eden on the basis of the scripture available to him, he thought of a mountain of God, end quote. So I think when we put all of these pieces together, the ancient Near Eastern context of Genesis 2, Genesis 2 itself, um, and uh, what we read in Ezekiel chapter 28 here, I think we have some good reasons for concluding that Eden and the Garden were on a mountain. So when we arrive at Genesis 3, and here's a point of significance, when we arrive at Genesis 3 and we witness the rebellion of our first parents, Adam and Eve, and we see them, God's response to them, he kicks them out of the garden, he exiles them, then what we need to be seeing is that they are, they're not just exiled from the garden, but they're exiled from the mountain of God. They're being forced away from the mountain of God because God's presence is especially concentrated there. This is important. This is going to be very important as we look at in this, this next section of the talk. God's presence is on his mountain, right? Just like it was on, on Eden, God's presence is going to show up 
on another earthly mountain. Right? I mean, the, the, the first chapters of Genesis are obviously not myth. These, this is real, these, real, these are real historical people, real historical places. At least I think so. Um, God's presence was on this physical mountain in this physical place of the, the, the garden, and his presence and his glory cloud is going to show up on another mountain here very soon. It's going to happen in the book of Exodus, and we're going to go there. So I think I've said enough to accomplish my first task of demonstrating that Eden and the garden are on a mountain. And hopefully this will help elucidate some of the concepts involved in that question we saw in Psalm 24, who shall ascend the mountain of the Lord? Hope it's beginning to take a little more shape and have a little more depth and meaning. Um, So now let's do this. Um, Let's move to this idea of a movable mountain. So I want to argue here then that, um, that the tabernacle, along with being a microcosm, a little world, is also a little mountain. In particular, it's a little Mount Sinai, and I think we should probably even, even see it as a, a little Mount Eden, right? I mean, just think about the kinds of things that show up in the tabernacle. It's decorated like a garden, okay? Um, in fact, um, Peter Gentry points out, and I cannot remember... Oh, uh, the, the Persian word from which uh, the Hebrew, what is it, gone? Someone who, uh, who are my Hebrew people in here? But uh, for garden, the Hebrew word for garden is gone, something like that. Like the, the, um, uh, the Persian word that's derived from, Peter Gentry points out, that word means a, uh, a walled off garden type place, a, a walled off safe space basically. And um, the tabernacle is that, um, because maybe the garden was that too, right? Um, it, it was a place that needed to be guarded. We have, you know, Ezekiel talking about some guardian cherub, right? We have Adam being a priest. One of the duties he's given is to guard the garden, right? Um, it would make sense that it would have walls around it. But anyway, um, the, we're going to see this sort of fencing come up uh, with, with Mount Sinai, there's a fence around it. It's a, you might say it's an invisible fence, but it's the, the, the fence uh, of God's uh, full words, he, you know, his words that aren't empty, his word that says, hey, if you touch the, this mountain, you're going to die. That fence is what we find around Mount Sinai. But anyway, let me, before I get ahead of myself, let's, let's, let's back up here. But my point is, when we think of uh, the tabernacle as a movable Sinai, and we think of Sinai as a place where God's presence was, it has a fence around it and so on. There's a lot going on there we'll unpack. We should be thinking that these mountains, the movable mountain, Mount Sinai, these things, don't, these aren't accidents. It's no accident God shows up and reveals himself in these ways, in these places. It's, it's, he's, what he's doing is he's telling his story. He's progressing his story, elevating his story about reversing Eden. Right? That's what he's doing. He's telling everyone, hey, I'm bringing you back to the mountain of God. I'm bringing you back to Eden. Is this making sense? Okay. All right. So let's, what we're going to do is just start looking at some parallels between Mount Sinai and the tabernacle. Here's the first parallel. Um, both Mount Sinai and, um, actually, wait, before we do this, no, 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 this is fine. This is fine. Let's do this. The first parallel is that both Mount Sinai and the tabernacle had three distinct zones, rooms, whatever you want to call them, I, I don't care, but three distinct zones. Um, 
And uh, the tabernacle, for example, had three distinct areas in which uh, only certain people could go under certain very specific conditions. And this is because God's presence was concentrated in the Holy of Holies. And the closer one moved toward that space, the closer one was moving toward Yahweh's dangerous holiness. And I say dangerous because God is perfectly holy. He cannot dwell in the midst of sinful, sinful people without destroying them. So we can begin to see some of these parallels between Mount Sinai and the tabernacle when we read Exodus 24. So let's do that now. If you, um, we'll look, that's on the next, uh, it's on your next slide there. All right, and I gotta, I'm gonna have to rush through this because we're at 11.34. Then he said to Moses, come, <clears throat> come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and seventy of the elders of Israel, and worship from afar. Moses alone shall come near to the Lord, but the others shall not come near, and the people shall not come up with him. Moses, and if you go back to Exodus 19, a few chapters before this, which you find is God putting in place a prohibition on the people even touching Mount Sinai. If they touch it, they die. Same thing for their animals. All right, so verse 3. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and the rules. Uh, uh, and all the rules. And all the people answered with one voice and said, all the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. Wow. Doesn't that sound like us? We're very presumptuous people about our, our abilities. And, God, and, and Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and 12 pillars according to the 12 tribes of Israel. 12 pillars represent the 12 tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins, and half of the blood he threw against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do, and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Verse 9, Then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and seventy of the elders of Israel went up, and they saw the God of Israel. This is amazing. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of, of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God and ate and drank. The Lord said to Moses, Come up to me on the mountain and wait there, that I may give to you the tablets of stone with the law and the commandment, which I have written for their instruction. So Moses rose with his assistant Joshua, and Moses went up into the mountain of God. And he said to the elders, Wait here for us until we return to you. And behold, Aaron and Hur are with you. Whoever has a dispute, let him go to them. Then Moses went up on the mountain, and the cloud this is an important phrase, the cloud covered the mountain. The glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day, he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. He called to Moses. That's another important phrase. Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain. And Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. 
Where else do we see a devouring devouring fire of Yahweh? What other structure? We see his devouring fire on Mount Sinai. What other structure has a devouring fire on it? If you're an ancient Israelite and you're thinking about Yahweh's fire that devours things. Exactly, an altar. I mean, Mount Sinai is a giant, it looks like a giant altar. It has, not only does it have fire, but it's got clouds, smoke around it too. All right. So the Old Testament scholar, L. Michael Morales, he says this about the significance of this tripartite, this three um, part distinction or division of Mount Sinai and the tabernacle. He says, commentators, at least as early as Ramban, that's not his real name, it's like a pseudonym, in the Middle Ages, he's just a medieval Jewish scholar. Um, commentators, at least as early as Ramban in the Middle Ages, such a party name too, hey, where's Ramban? I, I don't know, like, uh, you know, like, anyway. Uh, they, they have noted the similarity between Mount Sinai and the tabernacle. First, in relation to their tripartite divisions, whereby the Holy of Holies and the high priest's sole access correspond to the summit. He doesn't say this, but let's just, it's obvious. Moses is the only one who goes up to the summit, so he's like the high priest in, in these parallels. Um, when you, then you have the, uh, uh, the holy place accessed by the priests. They would go in and they could assist with uh, 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 putting oil uh, in the lamps and various things. Uh, and that corresponds to the second zone partway up the mountain. And the outer court with the altar accessed by the people corresponds to the base of the mountain. And the base of the mountain also has an altar. If you flip to your next slide, if, if you, I don't know if you need to flip, but uh, this comes from uh, Angel Manuel Rodriguez. He has an article in some book. I can't remember the name of the book now, but Sanctuary Theology in Exodus. This is his own rendering. Um, and you can see I've added the term altar in the arrows. That's the only way I've altered this, but the rest of it's his. So you have the base of the mountain, the bottom, that maybe uh, corresponds to the courtyard where the people could go because the people would bring their sacrifices into the altar just as they could approach the altar at the base of the mountain. The holy place, this is Aaron and his sons and the 70 elders, the priests. So that corresponds to the, the, the middle of the, uh, of the mountain and then the summit is maybe it corresponds to the Holy of Holies because God's glory cloud is present there. That's where actually, if you read the book of Numbers, uh, I want to say chapter 7, verse 89, verse 89, I think, um, you have Yahweh calling out to Moses from the tabernacle. But when you read where he speaks to Moses, from the place from which he speaks to Moses, you read about that, you find out he's doing that from between uh, these cherubim that are on each side of the Ark of the Covenant. So that's where God is. He's in the Holy of Holies, and he's at the very top of this mountain speaking to Moses. Okay. Um, the second parallel is this. Both Mount Sinai and the tabernacle are places of divine revelation and communication. Just as God communicated with Moses from Mount Sinai, he also communicated with Moses from inside the holy place. Yes, I have it here. Okay. From between the cherubim on the Ark of the Covenant, number 789. <clears throat> Interestingly, as Exodus comes to a close in chapter 40 with God's glory cloud having taken up residence in the tabernacle, the book of Leviticus opens with Yahweh addressing Moses from inside of the tabernacle. That is, Yahweh uh, calls to Moses from the cloud that covered the mountain, and then he calls to Moses 
from this cloud that covered the tabernacle. Here's our third parallel. The tablets upon which the Ten Commandments were written originated atop Mount Sinai. Interestingly, the area of the tabernacle that seems to correspond to the top of Mount Sinai, that is the Holy of Holies, is the place where the tablets of God's commandments were placed inside the Ark of the Covenant. So you've got the summit of the mountain, that's where the, the, the tablets come from, and where do they end up? They end up in the Holy of Holies, the place that typologically corresponds to the summit of the mountain where God's glory, his presence is and his glory cloud is. Does this make sense? <clears throat> Parallel four. It was only after, uh, yes, it was only after offering sacrifices on the altar at the foot of the mountain that Moses and his entourage ascended Mount Sinai to feast with the Lord. Similarly, it was only after offering sacrifices on the altar outside the tent of meeting that the high priest could enter the Holy of Holies on the Day of Atonement. So along with the parallels we've considered here, many scholars have noted various linguistic parallels between Exodus 24, which is a passage about Yahweh's special presence on Mount Sinai, and Exodus 40, which is the close of the book of Exodus. And that passage is all about Yahweh's presence settling in the tabernacle. For example, in Exodus 24, 15 through 16, we, re we read that the cloud of Yahweh's presence, quote, covered the mountain, and that Yahweh's presence dwelt there. Similarly in, Exodus, uh, similarly, in Exodus 40, 34, we read that Yahweh's cloud covered the tent of meeting. It's a nearly identical phrase in Hebrew. And that his glory cloud filled the tabernacle. Each of these actions by God in these distinct places sort of have those two parts to them. Many scholars have noted that the Hebrew term for tabernacle, which is mishkan, basically just means dwelling place, is related to the verb shakan, to dwell, which is used in Exodus 24, 16 to describe Yahweh's presence on Mount Sinai. So what, uh, what are these connections between Mount Sinai and the ta tabernacle uh, doing? So, and by the way, on your, I think the very last slide there is those parallels right next to one another. I love little charts like that. It helps uh, with typolo understanding typology a lot or seeing the types. So what's the relevance of, of all these, uh, these parallels or connections? What are they doing is that specifically the question. Well, according to Morales, they in part have a, a teaching or catechetical function. That He writes, when the cloud of glory journeys from Mount Sinai to the tabernacle, it is an act of catechesis. The tabernacle has become the mountain of God. He continues, quote, Through the tabernacle cultus, therefore, Sinai is not merely remembered, but relived, recreated, and re-experienced. Um, Reverend Childs, another Old Testament scholar, says, What happened at Sinai is continued in the tabernacle. And this is because the tabernacle becomes the mountain upon which God meets with his people through a mediator, first Moses, and then later the ordained priests. Of Israel. So what I've tried to do today is set us up for our last pre-Leviticus lesson, which will come next week. Um, we're going to be in a better position to see in more depth, I think, the significance of what takes place in the Garden of Eden, that when Adam and Eve are exiled, they're exiled off God's holy mountain. And um, we're, we're going to just be able to understand better what's uh, the images used in Scripture um, when God starts fixing all this mess. We're going to be able to see that, like, a, a new way of thinking about our lives in the world. Right? We're going to, I hope, see ourselves in, in a very real sense as priests. We're going to see, hopefully see ourselves in a very real sense as holy places where God's glory dwells. 
Uh, we're going to see in a very real sense that we're living sacrifices, and we're only that because we have Jesus, who has, uh, is the, the one and only final, you might say, decisive sacrifice. He allows us to become sacrifices, living sacrifices, and martyrs even. Um, you can't be a martyr for Christ unless uh, Christ first died. Um, anyway, I think this, this idea gets picked up, uh, and these images from Leviticus get picked up uh, in the book of, of Revelation. Um, but uh, anyway, that, that's where we're at today. Uh, we're going to stop. I think, I think we're in a good position to see a lot of these things and, and understand in more depth uh, how God's going to reverse Eden. And we're going to see that in all these uh, images in Leviticus. 